Well, today we are continuing our series called Evidence, where we've been looking at, are there actual facts behind Christianity, or are we just supposed to believe with like a, a blind faith? You know, is, is the Bible just a, a book of fairy tales, or can it actually be investigated to see if everything that is written is true or not? And what I've done throughout this series is I've introduced you to probably the most famous detective in all America. His name's Jay Warner Wallace. And he said that there's a very important principle that we need to do anytime we're investigating any type of case. Now, he specializes in the cold case murders, but these same questions can be used as we investigate the Gospels and, and Christianity. And what he said is that you never, ever, ever trust an eyewitness. You do what instead? You have to, yeah, you have to test an eyewitness. And he gave us four questions that you use in testing an eyewitness. The first one is, were they even present? You know, somebody's saying that they saw something, you need to know, were they actually there or not? Then the second question that you always need to ask is, can what they're saying be corroborated with any form of evidence? In other words, is there other things that can back up what it is that they're saying? And then the, the third question, we looked at this one last week, was, you know, has the story changed? Is it stayed consistent as they keep telling the story over and over and over again? And then the final question you ask is about motive and bias. Is there any type of bias that they may have or some sort of ulterior motive for lying? And so we've just applied that to the Gospels. And what we've discovered over these past couple of weeks is, yes, indeed, the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are actually present. They are actually eyewitnesses. By the way, if you've missed any of these messages, I'd encourage you to go to our website, exponential.church. You can see all the messages, hear everything that I've been sharing throughout the series. You can also go to our Facebook page or you can go to our YouTube channel, catch up on all the messages. But yes, they truly were present. But then we had to ask, okay, is there any type of corroborating evidence that would show that they were actually present? And so we took a whole week and we looked at that. And it was really fascinating because we saw the internal cooperation and then that external cooperation of people that were skeptics, that, that they were against Christianity. And some of the things that they write actually helped to cooperate what the gospel writers were talking about. And then last week we looked at, okay, is the gospels just like the telephone game or not? You know, has it just become sort of this urban legend, you know, that Jesus started out, yes, he was a good guy, he was a moral guy, he was a good teacher, but then as the story got passed down from one generation to the next, did all of a sudden people start to add different things to the story that, oh, he could do miracles, and oh, he claimed to be God, and oh, he just happened to rise again from the dead. But what we saw last week is, no, there's this thing called the chain of custody that we're able to see not only the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but what then did their disciples have to write and say? And then those people, what did their disciples? So disciples make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and we saw that chain of custody all the way from the original gospel writers to 363 AD at the Council of Laodicea when we finally got what we would call the New Testament. It gets lumped together with the Jewish scriptures. We call that the Old Testament to form the 66 books of the Bible. Today, then, we're going to look at that last question, and that is, what about motive? What about bias? You know, were they, they biased in any way? Did they have any type of ulterior motives? And we'll actually start today with that whole thing of, of motive. And if you think about it, every single crime, every single type of misdeed that somebody does, in fact, I go so as far as to say this, every single sin that somebody commits can be traced back to one of three, if not all three of these three things. First one would be this. Does somebody 
have some sort of like lust for like a, a, a sexual relationship or, or just a, a relationship in general. Second one would be, is there any type of financial motive that may be gained by telling a lie? The third would be then the pursuit of power. Are they going to become famous? Are they going to become powerful because of this lie? So again, every single lie, every single sin, every single crime comes down to money, sex, and power. Would you agree with that? Basically, that's the root of all of it. And of course, at the root of that then would be pride, right? All of those have to do with pride. If I want this, I want this money, I want this sex, I want this power for myself. So what we have to ask ourselves is, okay, let's, let's investigate that. When it comes to the gospel writers and what they're writing, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were they motivated by any of these things? So let's ask the first one. Were the authors driven by financial gain? The answer is no. And we know that not just because of their writings, but we know from the other writings outside of the Bible that all the disciples and especially the authors of the various books of the New Testament, they were actually poor many times. They were actually encouraging people to give away all their money. We know that all these guys weren't wealthy, at least from a material standpoint, in any stretch of the imagination. Now, what they encourage people to do is give away your income so that there will be no poor and needy amongst us. The Apostle Paul, he was talking about himself and the other apostles, and he writes this in 1 Corinthians 4.11. He says, even now we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten and have no home. Peter and John, at one point, they come across this disabled guy. He's a beggar, and he's begging them for money. Here's what they say to him in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ from Nazareth, get up and start walking. And so this is just two examples of both biblical writers, and then again, there's non-biblical writers that talk about how these guys didn't have wealth at all. In fact, oftentimes they are warning the wealthy who are rich that the money that they were accumulating could threaten them from a spiritual perspective in eternal matters. And so it would be pretty reasonable to conclude that if the gospel writers were lying, that it wasn't because they were trying to get rich. So then we have to go to the second question, and that is, were the authors driven by sex or relationships? Again, the answer is no. While the New Testament says very, very little about the love lives of the apostles, we do know that Peter was married from Scripture. We, we know that. We know from the writings of their disciples. Remember, we talked about that last week, that each one of these guys had disciples of their own. And we have those writings to this day. And we know from their writings that almost every single one of the disciples was married. And we know that every single one of them was encouraging people to live morally pure, to not live by the sexual standards of that day and time. Remember, the Roman Empire was the one that was ruling the world at that day and time. And they had all kinds of, of misdeeds. And they were way off. I mean, you know, wild orgies and all types of things. And even if you don't go to that extreme, even in that day and time, the Romans, they and, you know, encouraged, and even, you know, a lot of other people, the Jews included, had more than one wife. It was just common to do that. But yet, 
Look at what we read here in Scripture. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.2, A church leader must be above reproach and the husband of just one wife. And so the, the authors here, they're, they're not men like looking to have a good time. They're not using their position or their testimony in order to try to land some women in the bed. Now, let me make a quick note here. That's not to say that church leaders today don't do that. Right? I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV, read a couple internet articles, right? There are scandals all the time, church leaders, pastors, that are getting caught up in, in sexual sin. So I'm not saying that that isn't a motive today. But again, what we're looking at here is, were the gospel authors, were they motivated at all by the chance of sexual relationships? And so were they telling lies in order to, to, to fulfill these desires that they have? And the truth of the matter is this, there is absolutely no record in any ancient document that would support that. Now, here's the deal. Skeptics, they actually don't believe that the gospel authors were motivated by either money nor sex. They do, though, think that they were motivated by the third one. And so we got to ask this third question. Were the authors driven by a pursuit of power? You see, skeptics argue that since Christians ultimately ended up with immense power in Rome, that that was their motive from the very beginning. That let's tell some lies so that we can rise up to a position of power and authority. Now, while it is true that the very first popes, when you know, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, yes, it's true, the popes had tremendous power, not just religiously, but politically as well. But again, we're not looking at the 4th century. That's not the question we're asking. What we're asking is, were the gospel authors there in the first century, the guys that originally wrote it, were they motivated by power? Were they trying to gain power or not by telling this elaborate lie? Again, the answer is no. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 13, 1 to 2. He says, everyone, everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Does that sound like somebody who's trying to get power? No, Paul's saying, submit to those that are in power. Submit to their leadership. Trust that those that are in power, God has placed there for a reason, for a time and a season. By the way, that still applies today, by the way. No matter who you are, no matter who's in office, you've got to trust that God has that person there in office at that time and place for a reason. And so Paul writing here, he's, he's not trying to, to get power. He's saying submit and trust God's sovereignty. And by the way, think about the Apostle Paul. Remember, he was Saul before he became Paul, right? Saul already had power. He already had authority. He was already one of the religious elites. He had so much power, in fact, that he was allowed to sign the papers to order the execution of Christians. Remember when Christianity first started, Saul hated the Christians. 
He was persecuting the Christians. And again, he had so much power and authority, he could sign the paperwork to have them executed. But what skeptics want you to believe is that this guy Saul, who had all this power and authority, said, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to renounce my religion that I grew up with in, that, that I've become an elite in. I'm going to renounce all that. I'm going to walk away from it. I'm going to give up all my power. I'm going to give up all my authority. I'm going to start traveling all over the world. I'm not going to have any money. I'm going to be poor. I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to be shipwrecked. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get beaten. All in the hopes that someday, maybe 20 years or so from now, maybe I'll rise to a position of power and authority. That doesn't make any sense at all. Which leads us to the point that J. Warner Wallace writes about in his book. I put it on your outline. Just because something is possible doesn't mean that it's reasonable. Let me say that again. Just because something is possible doesn't mean that it's reasonable. In our court of laws, a defendant has to be proven beyond a what? Beyond a, a, beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond a possible doubt. A good defense attorney usually can even draw up enough to get you to think, you know, it's even beyond a reasonable doubt. A possible doubt? I mean, they could come up with all kinds of possibilities. You know, uh, the tooth fairy showed up, you know, and, <laughs> and killed this person. Well, I guess it's possible. I don't know. <laughs> so it's not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody has to be proven guilty. Again, all things are possible. It's possible right now you and I aren't actually here. We're dreaming this whole thing like the Matrix. It's possible. But it's not really reasonable. And I bring all that up because I want to share something with you, and I've shared this with you in the past. But keep in mind that whole phrase of just because something is possible doesn't mean that it's reasonable. I want you to think about how did each and every one of Jesus' original 12 disciples die. Now, we know that Judas committed suicide, so that leaves 11 but did you know that the remaining 11 all died for their faith? Now, 10 of them were actually martyred. John was the only one that actually died of sort of natural causes, but it's not because they didn't try. John was actually arrested. He was put into boiling oil so that they could kill him. Somehow he survived it. And so they said, all right, we'll just lock him up and put him in the prison for the rest of his life. And so sure enough, that's exactly what happens. John died an old man having been in prison for life. But then what about the remaining other ten disciples? Six of them were crucified, one was beheaded, one was stoned, one was stabbed to death, and one was speared to death. Ten of them die a violent death because of what they believe. Now let me say this to you. If you, 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 if you online, if me, if we die for Jesus, that does not prove that Christianity is true. People die all the time for things that they believe is true, but it isn't. Think of 9-11, terrorists, blue planes in the buildings, because they thought that what they were doing was what their God wanted them to do. But just because something is, you believe something to be true doesn't mean it necessarily is true. So again, you and I, if we die for our faith, it doesn't prove that Christianity is true. But with the original disciples, skeptics want you to believe that they hatched this very elaborate lie 
And then each of them was so committed to the lie that they were willing to die for it. And listen, I, I've shared this with you before. People will die believing you know, uh, lies all the time, but you won't die for something that, that you know is a lie. You just simply won't. If you know something is a lie, you won't die for it. But again, the skeptics say that these 11 conspired together. They made up the story of Jesus. They made up the story of the resurrection. And then 10 of them got executed for something they knew was a lie. Possible, but not reasonable. Add on top of that, Paul, Stephen, James, the brother of Jesus, also all claimed to be eyewitnesses, and each one of those also martyred for their faith. Think about it. Every single one of them knew whether this was a lie or not, but yet every single one of them was willing to die for it. Now, maybe one person would have been crazy enough to die for it, but all of them, the 10 disciples, the other three that I mentioned, plus John gets life in prison, don't you think at some point somebody would have cracked and said, this is all I. We've made up the whole thing. But yet they don't. Why? Because they trusted what they saw with their eyes, what they heard with their ears. And so I put it on your outline, and I've said this to you in the past. People die for lies all the time, but you will not die for something that you know is a lie. Here's the point. Those in the early church that rose to a position of prominence, of power, of authority, it made their lives worse. They'd have been better off keeping their mouths shut. Because now all of a sudden they're getting beaten and whipped. They're getting arrested. And most of them, ultimately, it's costing them their lives. Again, it's possible that they were lying. But it's probably not very reasonable. Skeptics go, okay, okay, okay. Even if all that is true, the disciples certainly were biased. I mean, why believe a story about Christianity written by Christians in the hopes that one day I'll become a Christian. Why would I believe anything like that? They love to quote the, you know, the old saying that history is written by the winners. You ever heard that before? That history is written by the winners. That those that win, they're the ones that then write the history of the win. And so what are you going to do? You're going to write good things about yourself. You're going to make yourself out to be the good guy. And so what they say, these skeptics of Christianity, is, well, it's the exact same thing. That since Christianity ultimately rose to power, it's these people that they're now writing, and they're making themselves the good guys. They're making Jesus the good guy. They're making Jesus be able to do things like miracles and raise again from the dead and all those types of things. History is written by the winners, they say. We can't believe anything that was written by a Christian because they were already Christians. But Jay Warner Wallace, he actually gives a great illustration of this, and it helps us to understand why this is such a bad argument that skeptics have. And so in addition to solving cold case murders, he said for every like five or six you know, murders he was trying to solve as a detective, he was also assigned bank robberies. And so they're going to put a picture here on the screen for you of one of the, this is actually one of the bank robberies that he was working. 
the guy standing there at the counter, his name is Mark Hill. And Mark walked into the bank up to the teller whose name is Deb. He sort of flashed that he had a, a pistol and he handed her a, a note saying that she needed to empty out the drawer and give all the money that she had. What Mark didn't recognize as he walked into the bank was the lady that's down uh, there in the, in the background. Her name is Kathy. Kathy went to high school with Mark. She recognized him as soon as he walked in. He didn't see her. Now, they hadn't seen each other since high school. He had been a star athlete. He had been very, very popular in school. And she, again, hadn't seen him for years, just assumed he had gone off to college, played sports. And she's like, oh, well, as soon as he's done his transaction, I'll say hi to him. You know, how you doing? Get reacquainted and everything. But Kathy said that as she was sort of glancing up to see when the transaction was going to be done, noticed that her friend Deb, who's working at the counter there, sort of had this look on her face of, I'm being robbed right now. <laughs> I guess that's a pretty obvious face. Now, ultimately, Mark Hill got out of the bank. He escaped, but he was arrested the same day. Why? Because Kathy was able to identify, that's Mark Hill. And so he was quickly arrested. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. When Mark walked into the bank, she would not have thought of him as a bank robber. In fact, she would have said, there's no way that Mark Hill would ever, ever rob a bank. It's crazy. It's beyond possibility. However, after he left the bank, she was 100% convinced that he was a bank robber. She believed in her heart that Mark Hill is a bank robber. She became a true believer in that. We may say she became a Mark Hillian in her beliefs. Now, here's the point. Is she biased? Is she biased because she's become a Mark Hillian? Can we not trust her because she believes 100% in her heart that he robbed the bank? The answer is no, she's not biased. Why, why is she not biased? It's because she saw it with her eyes. She's not biased at all. And this is why this objection from skeptics of Christianity is so dumb. They see, say that, you know, we, we can't trust people who became Christians in what they wrote because they're Christians. But what we got to remember is they didn't start out as Christians. They wrote what they wrote because of what they saw with their eyes. In the case of Kathy, in the case of the gospel writers, they aren't biased. They came to a proper conclusion based off of what they saw. Now, the skeptics say, well, I don't want to hear from the Christians. I want to hear from skeptics. Well, we actually talked about that a couple weeks ago, and the whole thing about cooperation, did a whole message on it. And one of the things we looked at there was the five writers that were writing during Jesus' day that were opposed to Christianity. They were against Christianity. But yet, what these five guys do in trying to oppose Christianity is they actually unintentionally corroborate many of the key, key details of Christianity. 
And what I said to you is, look, if we never had the New Testament, we never had the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the book of Acts, and then the other 22 books in the New Testament, even if we never had any of those things, we could just take the writings of these five skeptics, and basically, we have the gospel. Because they're trying to disprove it, but yet they're unintentionally cooperating some of the key details of Jesus and his resurrection. And then I'll give you one more skeptic that maybe you've never thought of before. This skeptic's name is Matthew. Now, Matthew ultimately goes on and he writes what we would call the Gospel of Matthew. But here's why I say he's a skeptic. Matthew, he wasn't looking to become a Christian. Matthew, he, he wasn't a, a, a part of the inner circle of Judaism and the religious elites. He was a Jew, but he wasn't looking for the Messiah. Remember, the Jews were looking for a Messiah to come to save them from the Romans. Matthew didn't want anybody to come save them from the Romans. You know why? He was in cahoots with the Romans. He was a tax collector. He's making a lot of money. So he isn't looking for a Messiah. He doesn't want Jesus to be the Messiah because Jesus will mess up his lifestyle. But yet Jesus invites him to come follow me. Matthew, he follows and he observes for three years. And then all of a sudden he watches as Jesus is arrested. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's whipped, he's spit upon. Ultimately he's hung on a cross. He dies and he's buried in a tomb. But then Matthew saw him alive again, resurrected. And it's then and only then that Matthew becomes a believer in Jesus. It's then and only then that he becomes a Christian. In the same way that Kathy would have never have believed that Mark Hill was a bank robber before he came into the bank, she would have tried to convince you, no, that is not the truth. Matthew would have been the same way. He wasn't looking for the Messiah. He would have tried to convince you that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Again, Jesus would only mess up his life. Why did Kathy become a believer that Mark Hill was a bank robber? Because of what she saw with her eyes. How did Matthew become a follower of Jesus, a Christian? It's because of what he saw with his own eyes. He couldn't deny what he saw. And that's why he wrote it all down. And so let me summarize what I've shared with you so far today. I put it on your outline this way. The disciples weren't prejudicially biased. They were evidentially certain. They weren't lying. They weren't biased. In fact, again, they would have been so much better off from a, a worldly standard had they kept their mouth shut. Because by writing what they did and continually talking about Jesus, they kept getting beaten and arrested, and ultimately they were arrested and killed. But why wouldn't they stop talking? Because of what they had seen with their very own eyes. So there's these four questions. We've looked at them. Were the gospel writers present? We've seen some pretty compelling evidence that, yes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were really there, eyewitnesses. Is there any corroborating evidence? Yep, we took a whole week. We looked at that. Corroborating evidence, both internal and external corroboration. 
that what they are writing is true? Are the Gospels like the telephone game? Nope. The story has remained consistent as it got passed down one generation to the next so that we know for certain that what we read today is the exact same things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John originally wrote. And then were they lying? Were they, they biased? Did they have some sort of ulterior motive? Oh, again, today, I think we looked at some pretty compelling evidence that would say, no, they weren't lying. They weren't biased. They weren't motivated by, you know, money, sex, or power. Now, next week, as we wrap up the series, we'll sort of summarize everything, and I've got a bunch of additional details um, that we'll add into it. And then we're going to make our, our verdict. We'll, we'll be the jury. It'll be time for you to decide. Is either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John a reliable historical account of what happened in the early first century? And I've said this to you every single week of the series. If even one of them is true, then that should change everything in your life. Now, all of a sudden, everything that Jesus said, we have to take seriously. Things like that he is God. Things like that he has the power over sin, that he has the power over death, that he and he alone is the way to heaven. If Jesus really rose again from the dead, that's life-changing, both for this life and the life to come. If your verdict next week is, no, they're lying, I've said this to you as well. Don't come to church anymore. Don't tune in online anymore. Why would you waste your time on something that you know is a lie, that you were able to investigate for yourself and see is a lie? And so next week's the, the big week. We'll bring it all together. And you'll have to come to a decision. What are you going to do with this guy named Jesus? Because this isn't once upon a time or long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, there lived a man named Jesus. Either it's a fairy tale or it's factual history. You'll have to come to that conclusion for yourself. So I would encourage you, continue, you know, re-listen to these messages that I've done. Get online, do your own research, see what the skeptics say. But remember these principles that we've looked at. How do you evaluate eyewitness testimony? Were they present? Can it be corroborated? Has it stayed consistent as the years have gone on? And then again, is there any type of bias in the testimony? Do your own research. Come to your own conclusion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for uh, just this opportunity to, to dig in and look at the, the historical record that it's the the why behind the what. I mean, we, we know all the, the, the stuff that happens there in Scripture and, and what happened. We're looking at the, at the why did it happen and did it really happen? Lord, it's amazing as we can put real dates and real people's names to all these things and then investigate it. See if it's true or not. So, Lord, I pray for each and every person that's here in the room, those that are watching online, whether they're watching live or watching sometime in the future, that, Lord, you continue to speak to their heart. And you would speak to their minds as well from an intellectual standpoint 
of is this true or not? Lord, if they come to the conclusion that yes, it is true history, Lord, I pray that that would change their lives, that they would submit fully to you all their words, all their thoughts, all their deeds, their actions, their finances, their relationships, their their jobs, their families. They would submit every single thing to you because your word is true and your word is powerful. Lord, if it's not, then help them not to waste their time anymore. Lord, I, I, I feel so strongly that your spirit is, is speaking and your spirit is convincing and convicting in the ways that your spirit can do, in ways that no one or no, nothing else can do. And so, Holy Spirit, have your way. Speak to us. Let us know the truth. And as we know the truth, we know the truth will set us free. In other words, help us to know Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross that we may have eternal life and the abundant life right here and right now. We pray all this in your precious and your holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.